0: Take your scriptures and turn to John chapter 20. And I want you to answer a question, and that is, does Jesus' resurrection really matter? Isn't it enough to just say, I'm a Christian? Why tether it to a specific doctrine or teaching? I mean, besides, my family has a long history of being Christians. That's been our faith all along. Or why can't it be enough to simply like what Christians stand for? Ordinarily conservative policies and politics. I mean, isn't heaven going to be a red state anyway? Right? Or I enjoy Christian music. I'm balanced. I like both pop and traditional And I love the liturgy of Christianity a lot more than the liturgy of, say, Hinduism or Buddhism. Doesn't that count for something? Why make such a big deal about a single teaching? Well, here's why. I want you to hear these words from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why most to be pitied? Because we've hoped the highest. We've hoped that salvation is a gift by God's grace alone and we have hope to live in a place called eternity that is a paradise. But then Paul finishes, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. This morning is a great morning to remind ourselves that Christianity is less about stuff and styles and a system of religious thought than it is about a Savior. It's less about politics and popular preachers and ministries than it is about a person. Jesus Christ is uniquely able to save sinners, but there is no forgiveness of sin without His bodily resurrection. John Stott said this, it is not the uniqueness of Christianity as a system that we defend, but the uniqueness of Christ. I would argue there is no Christianity without the resurrection. So does it matter Absolutely, it matters. It's vital for the forgiveness of sin. The philosopher Bertrand Russell makes a case for denying the existence of God by saying this. If I were to tell you that there is a China teapot in orbit around the sun, you could not disprove my claim. But failure to disprove something is not a good reason to believe it. In some strict sense, we should all be teapot agnostics and until somebody offers a reason to believe we are wasting our time bothering to do so that is the approach we all take to Thor and Apollo and Ra and Marduk and Mithras and the great Juju up the mountain then he says this couldn't we go a little further and think the same way about Yahweh about God the answer is no, not if God chose to enter into the material world and offer proof of who he is, proof of his existence, proof in the material world where he can be observed and studied and validated and substantiated. And that is exactly what he did in Jesus Christ. Listen to what John says in John 1:14. the word. From John 1:1, who was in the beginning with God, who was God, dwelt among us, and we have seen Him. We've seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. And if you've seen Him, you'd know this about Jesus: He is full of grace and truth. John says this in one of his smaller letters, First John chapter 1, verse 1 to 2: We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the Word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us, and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. See, the resurrection matters, because First Corinthians 15:14 states this: "If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is in vain. A lot of people present Jesus and encourage people to believe in him as though he is something similar to Pinocchio, that there's there's really no proof. You just have to believe and they tell you about their experience. But there's nothing verifiable and objective. There's no proof. There's no validity. That is not how the scriptures present Jesus Christ. We gather today and every Sunday because we believe this We believe a dead man walked out of a sealed and guarded tomb, never to die again. And what that did is it validated every claim he made about himself. Do you know some of the ridiculous claims he made? Not ridiculous as being foolish, but ridiculous and absurd as being, there's no way this guy is saying these things. He claimed that he alone is the son of God. He almost got stoned for that one. He claimed that he alone could forgive sin. And the Jews knew exactly what that meant because they again went to pick up stones to kill him. Jesus said that he could grant eternal life. And Jesus rested all his claims on one incredible event, his own death and resurrection three days later. You know, the resurrection matters, and it matters to atheist scientists as well. Well Well-known scientist Richard Dawkins had this to say about Jesus' resurrection. Presumably, what happened to Jesus was what happens to all of us when we die. We decompose. Accounts of Jesus' resurrection and ascension are about as well-documented as Jack and the Beanstalk. Is that true? He continues, the virgin birth, the resurrection, the raising of Lazarus, even the Old Testament miracles, all are freely used for religious propaganda. And they are very effective with an audience of unsophisticates and children. Is that all this is, is religious propaganda? What men like Bertrand Russell and Richard Dawkins are saying is this, don't miss it. The resurrection of Jesus Christ matters. And that's why they try to demean it and debunk it, because if he truly rose from the dead, it validates every single claim he made about himself, that he's the son of God. He can forgive sin and he can grant eternal life. And if you are outside of Christ, you will be judged. And if you are in Christ, you are safe because your sins have been forgiven. You know, it mattered to the disciples, too, but in a different way. If you put yourself in their sandals Their Messiah, the one they had believed was the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy, was executed by a foreign country. The Prince of Life hung on a Roman cross, lifeless. The one who repeatedly offered eternal life had seemingly been defeated by death, as every single human before Him, with two exceptions. Who will one day, I believe, also die. The man they had left everything to follow, listen to this, had left them. The one who turned water to wine, who caused the blind to see, who calmed the storm, who cast out demons, who multiplied food and raised the dead, is now himself dead. I'm not sure we can oversize, overemphasize the dread of that moment. Because you have to understand, the disciples are probably thinking as he is dying on the cross and waiting for God to intervene, and then he dies. And Jesus had recently told them, I will not leave you as orphans. But there they stand, seemingly orphaned and all alone. So let me ask you, did the, did the resurrection matter to them You know, if the Gospels were ordinary biographies, which they're not, but if they were ordinary biographies, there would be no Matthew 28 or Mark 16 or Luke 24, or where I've had you turn this morning to John chapter 20. Ordinary biographies ordinarily end with a person's death. I've read the huge two-volume work on the life of missionary Hudson Taylor. It ends with his death. I've read a biography of the life of Adolf Hitler that ends with his death. I've read Undaunted Courage about Meriwether Lewis and Thomas Jefferson, and the second to last chapter is entitled The Last Voyage of Lewis that Records His Death. Jefferson also died. Here you have the first man in history where he, a type of biography, four accounts of it are being written and they don't end with his death. Matter of fact, in John chapter 20, he picks up from the previous week to the first day of a new week. And I want you to look at John chapter 20, verse 1. And and this is the, the hopeful hinge on which the entire gospel account turns. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene. By the way, that is the Mary from whom Jesus cast out seven demons. That is the Mary who has a very dark history. Do you know she's the one that gets the first resurrection appearance? I mean, if you were designing this record, is that who you would have chosen? Does that make the strongest case for an eyewitness in a predominantly male-driven culture? You know, what, you know what God's doing? He's making a case for His grace. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. While it was still dark. Notice her commitment. Her love. And saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Verse 2, John 20. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple. The one whom Jesus loved. Uh, John's details make me laugh. Very modest how he refers to himself, right? Um, Of all the followers, I'm the one whom Jesus loved. Uh, And said to them, here's Mary saying to to Peter and John, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. By the way, what is Mary believing at this point? She's believing that the body of Jesus Christ was stolen. Verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple, that's John, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Again, more more modesty. OK, I'm the one whom Jesus loved and I'm the one who runs faster. OK, I, I love the humanness of people in the scriptures. Verse five and stooping to look in. and Don't miss this. Validated proof. He saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So you have here an empty tomb, but not quite empty. There is proof, objective proof that is happening here. Verse 8 says this. Then the other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and it says the same thing. It says about Peter and he saw and believed. What did they see? And what did they believe? Well, he saw the linen cloths and the face cloth, which is the smaller cloth that would have been tied in an oval shape under the jaw to keep the mouth closed while the body is getting set for Decomposition. When John says the face cloth was folded up, it is likely still in an oval loop, not untied. And certainly this is dispelling a Roman conspiracy or a grave theft. There's nothing hurried here. There's nothing stolen. These are gently wrapped and the face cloth by itself as if Jesus' body passed right through. As he will do when they're hiding in the upper room and he doesn't even need to open the door and he just appears. Look at John 28 to nine. Then the other disciple, John speaking about himself, went in and he saw and believed. Both of them believed for verse nine says this. For as yet up to this point, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. That's what they believed. They believed. There are at least 90 explicit references to Jesus Christ's resurrection in every genre of the New Testament. By the way, that's better documentation than Jack and the Beanstalk. On seven separate occasions, Jesus foretold his own resurrection, predictive prophecy is quite convincing. If you have somebody that can tell you about events before they happen, and they happen exactly like they said, not, not in some general Nostradamus form, but specifically the how, the where, the when, and the what, and it happens, I'd say that's not merely religious propaganda. On five of those occasions, Jesus specified not only the fact of His coming resurrection but also the precise timing. Let me read one of those to you out of Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. And by the way, the disciples were, were taught this ahead of time. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. Listen to the details from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed. That was no surprise to Jesus and be raised up on the third day. Again, that is not a general prediction that is one of exactness and precision. Jesus' death and resurrection cannot be explained away. It's like it is God's exclamation point that validates who Jesus said he is. And Jesus often made his spiritual claims testable, intangible, verifiable, objective ways. When we lived in Africa, we would often have to teach against the Faith healers that swept through and deceived masses of people. In Nairobi, finally, the people were starting to catch on when Benny Hinn purportedly was healing many people and bringing people back to life, yet there was no verifiable, objective, tangible proof. And the Kenyans themselves started saying, why isn't he going to the hospitals? Why is he charging money? Why doesn't he come down here on Uhuru Highway and deal with those who are in the most need, those who show the effects of having polio, where you and I had that vaccination, most of us at a a young age. Do you know when Jesus forgave, when He healed, when He rose from the dead, He offered proof? I love the story in Matthew 9 where He announces to the paralytic man, your sins are forgiven. I've used this. Several times before. And that brought accusations of blasphemy from Jesus' detractors. So Jesus asked them a question. Which is easier to say, your sins be forgiven, or rise up, take your bed, and walk? Which one is easier? Well, it's, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because that keeps it sort of in the spiritual, the mystical, the unprovable realm. For example, if I told you I saw Pinocchio this morning. No, I did. And I purposely made him lie because I wanted to see his nose grow. And that's how I knew it was Pinocchio. Well, did anybody else see it? No, but I know what I saw and you can't disprove it. Which you can't, by the way. You can't disprove that I had a conversation with Pinocchio this morning. But just because you can't disprove it doesn't mean it's true. Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or rise up, take your bed, and go home. As one British evolutionary biologist said, we can't prove there are no fairies, but that doesn't mean we think there's a 50-50% chance fairies exist. Do you know how you prove fairies exist? You produce a real-life small being of human form that has wings and magical powers, and you let other people witness it. It's verifiable, it's tangible, it's provable. So Jesus says in verse six, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. A tangible demonstration in front of eyewitnesses. And he could be interviewed. He could even be interrogated by the Jewish leaders. But he's there as proof. And and the, the, the response of the crowd says it all in verse eight. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men, the authority to heal and the authority to forgive sin. Another example is the leper who was cleansed or the man who had a withered hand that was clearly made whole and the woman with an issue of blood who was healed or the widow of Nain's son who was restored back to life or Lazarus, Lazarus who was brought back from the dead after four days. Jesus attached his claims to and his credibility To the most ludicrous event possible, and that is his own resurrection three days after his death. If that didn't happen, your faith is futile. If that didn't happen, you are still in your sins. If that didn't happen, the last 12 years of me preaching to you has been in vain. Look at verse 11, John chapter 20. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Why is she weeping, by the way? Well, the loss, the grief, the images of crucifixion, too recent from the previous week, too real, too fresh. Verse 12, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, and she again repeats what she believes happened. They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now note this. John and Peter saw the empty tomb and the burial cloths, but Mary sees Jesus. Verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, general term, woman. Why are you weeping? He sounds very much like the angels. Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Mary simply wants to give Jesus a proper burial. at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means Teacher. I love Jesus' words in John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Mary knew her good shepherd. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Now look down at verse 24. Because you have the empty tomb, you have have Peter and John running to the tomb, finding The the tomb empty, but not completely. You have the appearance to Mary Magdalene. Then you have the appearance to the other disciples. They've locked themselves for fear in the upper room. He presents himself to them. He says, peace be with you. But I want to focus on another individual down in verse 24. Now, Thomas. By the way, what's his nickname? Do you know? Most of us know. It's Incredible Thomas, right? No, it's what? Doubting... Tom, one error, and he gets labeled for history, right? Um, now, Thomas, one of the twelve, he's an apostle called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. I and mean, he wasn't there. Can you imagine how he feels? He said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side where that spear had gone in, I will never believe. There may be someone here like that this morning. There's certainly people like Mary Magdalene. Not wondering if she deserves grace. No one deserves grace. Grace is undeserved favor. But there may be someone here like Thomas. Like, I, I am so sick of religion. I'm tired of canned preachers. I just, I'm done with it. All the top 40 music, it just drones on and on. I'm just ready to walk away from it all. Maybe you're like Thomas. I will never believe he's a skeptic, yet he's an apostle. Look at verse 26. Thomas wanted physical evidence. Eight days later, by the way, that's a long time when all your friends are saying, we've seen him, we've seen him. And Thomas is wondering, why hasn't he shown me? Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, just like he had passed through his burial clothes. And he said, peace be with you. By the way, don't miss this in verse 27. Jesus knew several things. Then he said to Thomas, he walks in and he sort of fixates on Thomas. And he said, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. It's interesting that Jesus knew what Thomas had said when Thomas thought he was alone. Unless I do this, I will never believe. But it's also very encouraging to me that Jesus displayed sympathy towards Thomas's skepticism. Look at verse 28. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That confession that Thomas makes is a fitting conclusion and appropriate response to Jesus. My Lord and my God. a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul would state this later, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that's what Thomas did, and believe in your heart, what does he say next? That God raised Him from the dead. You will be saved. See, the resurrection matters. My Lord and my God. I want to close by just highlighting several implications of the resurrection that become clear to us from this text. First, there is objective proof for Christ's resurrection. Verifiable, tangible, not just in the subjective realm, though that happens as well in a person's heart, but we're, we're asking more than just find this feeling or this experience. We're holding up a set of facts The strongest being hundreds of eyewitnesses. As a matter of fact, Acts 1 verse 3 says this. Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Luke writes that. It's a technical term in medicine for demonstrative evidence, physical evidence that demonstrates conclusively a diagnosis. Jesus showed himself alive by many proofs. How did he do that? appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Second, in Christ, we are delivered from the grave. We're about to sing two more songs together. And we can sing in celebration because we know that by placing our faith in Christ, we too are delivered from the grave. That death has no ultimate hold over us. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 15 says this, when our dying bodies, have been transformed into bodies that will never die. This scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Thank God He gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are continually being reminded by the war in Eastern Europe of images of suffering and death. Do you know that Christ's resurrection provides hope beyond the grave? Third, I just want to highlight this again. The two appearances are are instructive. Mary Magdalene, who was a case for grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And then Thomas, a case for skepticism. A disciple who demanded evidence is put on display where Jesus says, Do not disbelieve, but believe. You know what Thomas demonstrates? Salvation does not depend upon the strength of our faith, but upon the object of our faith, who is Jesus Christ. Is the claim of a bodily resurrection from the dead any different than a claim To have seen the Loch Ness Monster or a large furry mammal that delivers candy. The claim is different because of what it points to. Yet, every claim we have to evaluate three things. The witness or witnesses. The kind of experience and the motive behind the claim. So, If your friend says she saw the Loch Ness Monster while in the Scottish Highlands, who was otherwise a very trustworthy, honest person, what would you conclude? Do you believe she saw Nessie? That's the affectionate name they give to the Loch Ness Monster. You would probably assume, no, she did not see this long-necked, dark-colored monster coming out of the water, but your friend certainly saw something, though she's misunderstanding what she saw. What if your neighbor who had a reputation for seeking attention and loved debate and was a full blown narcissist made an earnest claim that he saw a giant burrowing carrot eating mammal deliver Cadbury eggs and peeps to his children? Peeps. Would you believe him? Well, you're evaluating the witness. The kind of experience he said he had. And his motive and purpose behind the claim. You have four gospel accounts that record predictive prophecy about Jesus Christ. Jesus himself predicting his own death and resurrection, exactly how it happened. And you have hundreds of people who say they saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15:6 says this. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, meaning they could be interviewed. What was their purpose in saying they saw him? they saw him there's no ulterior motive what is important for you and me in the, in the fact that they saw him is this jesus said he was the son of god could forgive sin and grant you eternal life and then he showed himself alive by many infallible proofs at the end of john's account of the gospel and this is in conclusion In John 20, verse 30, it says this. John puts forward the the purpose for his writing this account. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, in the Gospel of John. But these are written, the seven signs he focuses on, with an emphasis on Christ's death and resurrection. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life, in His name. Do you believe that? Jesus told Martha, all who believe in Me, though they die, yet shall they live. I'm going to invite our music team forward. I'm going to read two more Scripture passages highlighting the fact that Jesus' resurrection matters. And here's why it matters. And Pastor Sean Already read this scripture for us this morning. Philippians 210 to 11. This is a future event. Okay, this is sort of on the timetable to happen soon. At the name of Jesus, every knee, believer and unbeliever, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For those of us who are still alive, for those of us for whom it is not too late, what is an appropriate response to that? Romans ten nine to 10 if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. If you have never done that this morning, would you call out to Jesus now? Would you believe? Would you trust and know the joy of having your sins forgiven and the hope of eternal life? And if you're confused or you have questions, would you not rush off after we're done singing? Seek me out. Talk to somebody. Let us show you in His Word the promises that are sure so that you can receive the forgiveness of sin. Let's pray.